Good morning, Four Corners. We bless the Lord in our souls for another time to gather and, and to see a baptism. Uh, what a blessing to see uh, people go under the water as a, as a symbol of their dying to their old life and being raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I, I love when we have baptisms, uh, particularly for the sake of our children as they are growing up in our homes and they get to see this, this picture. This is a divinely ordained picture. This is God's way of expressing the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we don't think about that. You know, we, we, we try to picture it ourselves, picture the realities of the gospel, but the Lord has actually given us two pictures of the gospel, and that's what the ordinances or the sacraments are about, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we get these pictures that God has ordained and created for us to see these great truths. So I pray for all of you kids who are still in here that you're taking note, that you are taking in that visual uh, to understand the depth, the reality behind the symbol. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, I pray the same for you, that you uh, give fresh consideration to what it means to truly know God, to truly be redeemed, to be saved from your sin, uh, and this imagery of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning is Exodus 28, uh, at the end of 28. So if you'll go there, verses 31 to 43, that's where we'll be this morning, Exodus 28, 31 to 43. And just to give you a sense for where we are, we have been traveling for some time. You lose track at some point, uh, but we've been going through for a while the book of Exodus. Uh, and so that's the reason, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, that's the reason we have these posters up, is when we start a new series, we tried to take a, a couple of texts that are uh, just um, really bright, really glorious from the book and put those onto the wall just to keep, our, keep ourselves anchored where we are in God's Word. And so uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are in Exodus, and for several weeks now, we've been discussing the tabernacle, or we could also say Israel's worship of Yahweh. So when you think tabernacle, don't just think this thing that is built, and we've been reading all these instructions, think worship. To discuss the tabernacle is to discuss Israel's worship of Yahweh. God did not save his people simply to relocate them from Egypt to Canaan, nor did he save them simply for the sake of saving them. And sometimes the way we think about our salvation or the way we speak about it, we act as though that is the case. And that would not be surprising in our me-centered culture where self is God. And th the truth is, this is the water we drink, the air we breathe. We can uh, try to act like it's not infiltrating our souls, but it indeed is always there. And in such a culture, it would be easy to see that God saved them, saved us, simply for the sake of saving them or us. But God's purpose, as we read through Exodus, was to bring them, the Israelites, to himself, to establish his presence among them. In other words, the purpose of the Exodus as an event of salvation is worship. 
That's the purpose, and that has to do with the glory of God. The ultimate goal of all reality, the ultimate goal of our being saved, the reason that any of us is saved is for the glory of God. And God is glorified through the heartfelt, holy worship of his people. And that helps us to make sense of the tabernacle. This is why it takes up so much space in the book of Exodus. And it might seem strange to you, you're reading through this wonderful narrative of uh, some of the most famous stories in literature, in human history. Uh, You get uh, the story of the increase of the Israelites and then the plagues. You get the parting of the sea, the manna from heaven, uh, water from a rock. You get this shaking mountain and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then you come off of all that, and for some it might seem like you've really descended quite a long ways, that now you're looking at uh, coverings and curtains and rods and loops and so forth. Seems like maybe you have really dropped in terms of significance, but that is not the case at all. In fact, everything we've been reading in Exodus is climbing this mountain, so to speak. And the mountain peak is what we are reading in the tabernacle. And you see that at the end of Exodus with Exodus chapter 40, Uh, It's over there on that wall where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. That's where we're headed. That is the climax. That is the pinnacle. It is all about the theme of worship. So I hope that you'll never read through these passages again in in your lifelong Bible reading. You'll never read through these passages again and think, okay, here we go. And just start plowing through, but that worship, worship, worship will be flashing before all of our eyes. Today is part two of a set of sermons entitled The Priests and Their Garments. So this is The Priests and Their Garments, part two. Up to this point, Most of our time has been spent focusing on the tabernacle structure. As we started talking about the tabernacle, most of our attention has been given over to the structure itself, what you would see if you walked up to it or what you would see if you walked into it. We've looked at the tent with its two rooms and various pieces of furniture and the court with its bronze altar. And if you, if you could, Jen, just put that up. I didn't mention that. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. But if uh, the, the, the entire structure, she, she's quick. She's right on it. Uh, the entire structure here that we see with the courtyard, and then you see the bronze altar there right as you come into the entrance, sacrifice right there, the emphasis on coming to God through sacrifice, the focus on atonement, and then you keep going, and we haven't talked about the wash basin yet, so I'll skip over that for now, but you have the tent there with the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. So up until this point, our focus really has been on these things as they are, the tent with its rooms and furniture and the court with the bronze altar. But now, starting last week, our attention has turned to those who minister in this holy place. The holy men who serve the holy God in this holy place. So that's what we started looking at last week and we'll continue on this week. And then next, uh, in the weeks ahead, we'll be looking at the priests 
as well. Last week, we were introduced to these priests, Aaron and his sons, Aaron, Moses' brother. Remember, the Lord is giving this instruction to Moses on the mountain, and Moses' brother Aaron, who was with Moses as he was telling the Pharaoh of Egypt to let God's people go, Aaron and his sons will serve as the priests. And we saw two overarching things about these priests last week, and we got a definition of them, what they are at the core. They are God's servants, explicitly said multiple times, and they are Israel's representatives, God's servants and Israel's representatives. And this brought us to two high priestly garments, which we focused on last week, the aphod and the breastpiece. And in both cases, the high priest brings the tribes of Israel before the Lord. And so I hope, if you've never read that before, I hope that was striking to you last week. That in two places on the high priestly garments, the high priest as representative of all the people, the 12 tribes of Israel, that he brings all the people before the Lord, six names on each of the two shoulder stones. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The Israelites are the descendants of those 12 sons. Well, for the high priest, six of those names are on one stone, on one shoulder, and six names on the other shoulder. But that's not enough. The Lord wanted to make this clearer and louder. And so... Not only are they grouped together, but each son, each tribe, gets his own stone on the breastpiece. So 12 stones, one name per stone on the chest. And so the high priest represents the people in these two ways. There were two things that I did not emphasize last week that I want to draw your attention to briefly this morning before we get into our passage for today about these stones. And the first is that these stones acted as a reminder of God's past faithfulness. Now, I told you last week that the emphasis in the text was on being a remembrance before the eyes of God. And so remember, I brought up Noah and the rainbow, that the rainbow was put into the sky, not as a reminder to the people, although it had that effect, but as a reminder to the Lord. That the Lord, not that he needs to be reminded, but it is symbolic for the truth that when God sees the rainbow, he remembers, as it were, his covenant and he does not destroy all of mankind. And the same is true here with these stones. When God sees the high priest, he remembers his covenant with Jacob. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's really the focus of the text and that's what I emphasized last week. But I also want to draw attention to the fact that these names on these stones functioned as a reminder of God's past faithfulness. They must never forget. The Israelites must never forget all that the Lord had done in the book of Genesis. All that God had done in the life of Jacob. And so in that way, these names on these stones functioned like the loaves in the holy place. How many loaves were there? Twelve loaves. Let me say it this way. The patriarchs 
were always on the mind of the priests. You could not be a priest in Israel, you could not be a high priest without constantly being confronted as you put on those priestly garments, as you walked into the holy place and saw those 12 loaves, as you partook weekly of those 12 loaves and put fresh loaves there, you simply could not forget all that the Lord had done in establishing this people. The patriarchs are always on the mind of the priests. Another thing that we see with these stones is that they functioned as a reminder of God's view of his people. Now keep that in mind. Uh, these are not inscribed merely on uh, or woven into fabric. These are not engraved in bronze plates. These are placed on precious stones. It reminds the people that they are precious in the sight of the Lord. And you can imagine as the priests are ministering to the people that they might oftentimes doubt that fact. They might oftentimes wonder about that fact as they grew discouraged in ministering to the people. But constantly, they, they could never put on the apho, they could never put on the breast piece without being reminded of the fact that the people to whom they minister are precious to the Lord on these precious stones. We see something similar, I think, at work in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, in the logic of the Apostle Paul. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and uh, let me be clear on this. Uh, as Christians, we do not have priests. Uh, we have elders, shepherds, overseers in the church, as Will was praying earlier. We do not have priests, but there is a, an analogy here. There's a connection here in the way that Paul addresses the elders of the Ephesians in reminding them of the preciousness of God's people to whom they minister. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, and here it is, which he obtained with his own blood. There is no ministry in the church that is not frustrating. There is no ministry in the church that is not sometimes discouraging. And there are no people of God who will do perfectly. None of us. None of the elders. None of the deacons. None of us here this morning. Constantly, the leaders of God's people, whether they be elders or deacons or teachers or gospel community group leaders, leaders of any kind, those who minister within the church, and in fact, that includes all of us, there's never a time in which we don't need to be reminded of how precious the people to whom we minister are to the Lord. Those whom Christ obtained with his own blood. Likewise, for the high priest, every time he saw those stones with those names, these people are the precious, purchased, redeemed people of the living God. If you would stand with me as we read our passage for this morning. Today we'll be looking at 28 verses 
31 to 43. And this is the word of God. We have already, I I debated on whether to reread all that has proceeded. I will be gracious. (laughs) We won't read all that we have here with the aphode and the breast piece. Uh, But I want you to keep that in view, that what has just been described prior to what we're going to read is the priests are ministering with the oil. Uh, They they receive the oil, and they are to light the lamps, and then it goes into the priest, Aaron and his sons, and it discusses two parts of the priestly garments, the aphode and the breast piece. And it just continues up to verse 31 after considering the breast piece. So here we go, verse 31 to 43, this is the word of God. You shall make the robe of the aphod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple, and scarlet yarns around its hem, with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its second And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord or holy to Yahweh. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. You can go ahead and be seated. These are the verses we're going to look at this morning. We praise God for every morsel that he gives us of his word and how he feeds his people uh, with his word. By the way, as I just read from Acts, with the flock of God, uh, the, the flock, the, the sheep are to eat from green pastures, and those green pastures are the word of God. And so we hear Jesus telling Peter in John 21, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And uh, this, of course, has to do with giving God's gospel, giving God's word to his people. So let's praise God this morning as we pray that he gives us his word and that we now will come to it 
uh, to receive what he has provided. Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the holy scriptures. And we ask now that your grace would be upon us and in us, that your spirit would guide us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are so kind to us, that you have saved us. Uh, but Lord, you haven't saved us to put us in the middle of, the, of nowhere with no direction. Lord, you have given us your word And we have it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, Lord, we are not alone. We are not uh, without direction. We praise you, God. And we ask that you would more and more uh, rejoice our hearts with Scripture. Uh, Give us wisdom with Scripture. Uh, Help us, Lord, to have a biblical worldview as we encounter so much insanity in our world today. Lord, and and so much darkness, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on Christ and that through a Christ-centered Bible, we will see the world rightly. Lord, we pray that you would guide us this morning by your Spirit. Help us to see and to understand, to love and to practice what we encounter today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want you to notice two things this morning as we continue looking at the priests and their garments. Two things that come out from these verses. Now that we have in view who the priests are and the the aphod and the breastpiece really help to drive that home. That They are the servants of Yahweh. They are the representatives of Israel. I want you to see two things this morning as we come to these other garments. uh, What some commentators have called the minor garments. Although I think uh, what we'll find with the head is not a minor garment. Uh, But we come up here to two things this morning, the danger and the distinction. So we're going to look at the danger, verses 31 to 35, as well as verses 42 to 43. And then we'll look at the distinction, uh, verses 36 to 41. And by the way, these are both themes that we've seen before, uh, and we will see them again and again. I can remember preaching uh, through Genesis and uh, just being struck every week with the repetition Uh, And just coming to terms with that and being at peace with that, uh, that yes, a lot of the things I said last week and the week before and the week before that are going to be said again this week. And there's there's a purpose for that. It is because constantly in the book of Genesis, we are getting this theme of faithfulness and promise, faithfulness and promise just over and over. So we need to feel it over and over. And the same is true with the themes that we are encountering here With the tabernacle. So the danger and the distinction. So let's look first at the danger. And for that, I want to read again verses 31 to 35 and verses 42 to 43. So let's look at these again. You shall make the robe of the aphod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh, before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die." Then verses 42 to 43, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. 
They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. The reason that I have pulled these verses together is because of this emphasis on death in each set. At the end of both of these string of verses, we get this emphasis on death. Verse 35, so that he does not die. Verse 43, lest they bear guilt and die. Now we'll come back to this in a moment. We'll talk about it in more detail. But for now, I want you to see that there is an inherent danger. We need to, we need to recognize this. There is an inherent danger danger involved for the priests in this tabernacle worship. Uh, This is not for the inattentive. Uh, This is not for the faint of heart. There is a serious kind of courage. There is a serious reverence that is involved here with these priests. It is a dangerous matter that could result in death. And one of the things that is so striking here is we recognize that Aaron is mentioned with his four sons. Well, it will not be long before two of them are snuffed out. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu are killed as they offer strange fire to the Lord, as they they disobey God's commands. So we see that early on in all of this, two of the five mentioned are killed, leaving only three. Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu are killed. This is a dangerous thing to serve as a priest in this holy place. Following on the heels of the aphod and breastpiece, Yahweh describes to Moses the blue robe. The garment that goes under the aphod. I'll go ahead and give you the the picture because I gave it to you last week. Um, If you want to go ahead and put that slide up. So this is a reconstruction. I emphasize that. This is, uh, you know, a lot of these things are not entirely clear as to precisely how they looked then. But this is a reconstruction of what the high priest would wear. And here we have the blue robe, the garment that goes under the aphod. Remember I described the aphod as like a vest or an apron. And you see the blue robe that extends down further underneath the aphod. It had an opening for the head. And this portion is woven in such a way that would prevent it from tearing. Now it's described here as one seamless garment. One garment woven together, not joined together. And this is interesting. Uh, Some have pointed out here a connection to John chapter 19, verse 23. And I can remember when we were years ago going through the gospel of John, discussing this. John 19, verse 23. Jesus is there on the cross. And we read this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments And divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So are we getting here a clear line drawn from uh, John 19 all the way back to Exodus 28? Well, we cannot be sure. The line is not drawn in bold, permanent marker, but it is a hint. It is suggestive of the fact uh, that Jesus is the high priest. Here we have this woven, seamless garment. John makes a point to draw attention to this. But the focus of attention for this garment here in Exodus is at the bottom. Very little is said about this blue robe apart from the bottom. That is the focus. And there at the hem, we find two alternating decorations. And remember, these garments are made for beauty and also for glory. They're made uh, to draw attention to the role of the high priest, the dignity of the priestly work. They're made simply to reflect the beauty of the Lord, to reflect the beauty of his creation. But they also have a symbolic function. So we have two alternating decorations. First, we get the pomegranates. These pomegranates are woven with blue and purple and scarlet yarns dangling from the hem. So what's going on here with these pomegranates? Well, I think it points back, it points backwards in two ways. First, as we've seen many times, the color of the yarn, the type of yarn, the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, points back to the tent which we've just discussed. Remember the inner curtain of the tent, of the tabernacle, and the veils, both of the veils, the screen by which you enter into the holy place and the veil by which you enter into the most holy place was made of this blue and purple, and scarlet yarn. It is a pointer to the function and role of the priest. It reminds everyone where he's headed when he puts these things on. He is a holy man headed to the holy place. But it also points back to Eden. Now, I think that this is one of the great truths of the tabernacle. I have come to believe that as we view the tabernacle, one of the great themes that we are to have before our eyes is the theme of Eden. Constantly, we find with the direction of the tabernacle and the symbolism within the tabernacle, even as we discussed last week with the gold and the onyx stones, we are going back to Eden. God has made a way to go back behind the fall. That's the hopefulness. That's the the good news of the tabernacle is that there is a way back to Yahweh. There is a way to go back. Although Eden was closed off and the cherubim were there with flaming swords, God has made a way to go back into his presence. He's made a way to go back to the tree of life, to go back to paradise. So why do the pomegranates Point back to Eden. Well, all throughout the Bible, the pomegranates are, uh, they are a picture of abundance and beauty. Fruitfulness. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 8, as the Lord is describing the promised land. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of Vines and fig trees and 
pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. That in and of itself is like a mini description of Eden. It is like a a picture of the fact that, that God in bringing the Israelites into Canaan is pointing backwards to Eden. We also find in the Song of Solomon, various times the pomegranates are, are used as a reference to beauty. So in Song of Solomon 6, verse 7, uh, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. I don't know if you've used that uh, lately with your bride on Valentine's Day or whenever. I may pull that one out this afternoon uh, for my wife, Jennifer. Uh, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Uh, But we see there the emphasis on beauty, abundance, and beauty pointing back to the glories of Eden, the glories of paradise. Second, we have these golden bells, these golden bells, each of which was separated by a pomegranate. These were alternating all around the bottom of the robe, so a pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell, all the way around the bottom. And if you want to put that slide back up again, Jen, uh, all around the bottom, you see the alternation of these golden bells and these woven pomegranates. And verse 35 explains the significance of these bells. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. That's interesting. We read that, and it leaves us scratching our heads a little bit. Uh, and that's one of those places probably where you go down to the bottom of the page and read the commentary notes. Uh, you're scratching your head. Why, is, uh, why, why are they going to die, and what's the relationship to the bells? What's the point of these bells? Well, We're not specifically told in Scripture. So a lot of uh, ideas about this you can read out there, a lot of speculations about this. We're not specifically told, but a number of possibilities have been proposed, and there are probably a number of reasons. I, I think we find that often when we read the Bible, is we are looking for the one reason, and this is one of my frustrations often with commentators, is they're looking for the one thing, the one thing, but God is more creative than that. God is often doing many things with one thing, and I think that's the case here with these bells. And so let me just give you a few reasons why I think these bells are here or what they symbolize. So first, reverential entry. Reverential entry. The priest, the high priest, is not to come into God's presence unannounced. Uh, No one would just roll up on the king while he is in his chamber, on his throne. At the very least, you knock, right? At the very least, you would knock. You don't just slam open the door and walk up and start chatting away to the king. Well, the same is true here with these bells. There is a reverential entry, not coming unannounced. It's a sign of respect for the Lord as the high priest enters into his house. Remember that the tabernacle tent is meant to function as God's house. It is God's dwelling place. And so there would be reverence as this house was approached in notifying the king as it were that you were entering as a sign of respect. 
A second reason for these bells would be right of entry. Right of entry. Only the high priest. Now the priests we know move in and out of the holy place. But the the, the imagery here is that the, the priests aren't just going into the holy place apart from the high priest. The imagery here is that the high priest is the one who is functionally doing this. And the other priests are his assistants. That's the image that we have here. Only the high priest spearheads the worship that even happens in the holy place. Let me say it this way. The bells should be jingling as the screen is moving. When the screen moves to the side or up, however it was entered, when the screen moves, the bells better be jingling or have jingled. It is about right of entry. And in this way, the bells serve as an ID card for the high priest. They are on a high priestly garment. And they are an audible ID card saying, okay, the right person has entered to worship the the Lord rightly. I think what's also going on here is reassurance of those outside. You can imagine the others outside, the Levites who are serving in various capacities, the other priests, those who have brought their sacrifices uh, to the bronze altar. By hearing the jingling going on inside of the tent, the people are reassured that they are being represented. The Lord is receiving us through the high priest. No jingling no representation, no jingling, no mediation, no jingling, no presence, no atonement. None of those things happen without the sound of the bells. So it reassured the people that the tabernacle was functioning as it was designed to function. And then finally, It offers a way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And in this way, it's much like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden. I I mentioned this uh, last week, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden is not some sort of magical fruit. It's not that they bit into it and all of a sudden it it sort of brightened up. Well, it didn't brighten anything, but it all all of a sudden infused their being with some sort of fresh knowledge. What happened was they disobeyed God. It could have been any tree. With any fruit, nothing special, nothing different really. It was the tree that was forbidden. And that's all it needed to be. So in this sense, it brings us back to Eden. If this is what the Lord commanded, this is what must be done. Only the high priest and wearing his bells to disobey is to bring death, Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, Exodus 19, verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The penalty for disobeying the Lord is always death. It is death. The penalty for rebellion against the king, treason against God is death. And this is what we need to understand this morning, that 
Every sin deserves death, for the wages of sin is death. Now, now we don't think that way because we take our sin very lightly. We take other people's sin seriously, but our own sin we take very lightly. The wages of sin is a little bit of guilt over my mistake. We use mistake. We don't use sin. We take our sin very lightly. But the truth is that every disobedience against the Lord will be punished with death. Every single act of disobedience against the Lord will be punished with death. And listen to this. That means one of two things for us this morning. Either the death of Christ on the tree, bearing the curse, dying as a sinner in our place, either that death covers all of our acts of disobedience, or we will forever give an account for every act of disobedience before God in hell. It's one of the two. There are no mistakes in this sense. Now, we recognize mistakes, you know, you spill milk or whatever. But sin is that serious. It is mind-boggling when churches do not speak of sin and hell. It is appalling and disgraceful when preachers will not preach about sin, death, and hell. How will we see Christ without understanding these things? How will we know the gospel and the atonement? How will we come to rejoice in God's mercy if we do not know these things and feel the weight of these things in our own hearts? The second warning of death comes in verses 42 to 43 with reference to the undergarments. Stated simply, the priests must wear their underwear. That's what it says. Verses 42 to 43. Linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. That's what they have to do. From their hips to their thighs. Verse 43. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So they have to wear their undergarments. They cannot just go about this work. They cannot just go into this holy place not wearing their version of underwear. You don't, you don't hear that word in sermons very often, but here we are with the undergarments. And this goes back to something we've seen already. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 26, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So what's the point of all of this? I mean, God sees through our clothes. We are in that sense always naked, as it were, before the eyes of God. So what's the point? We were, we were made this way. We, we, this is who we are. This is how we come into the world and this is how we leave the world. We are human beings. What is the problem here? What is the point regarding human 
nakedness or exposure in this way? Well, we know from Genesis that nakedness after the fall has certain connotations. Nakedness after the fall is associated with guilt and shame. And by the way, where there is, whether in a primitive culture or in the licentious Western culture, where there is a throwing off of the need for covering of nakedness, there is that much more of a, of a dipping into depravity, a rejection of the reality of the fall. Humans cannot live as though the fall never happened. Nakedness after the fall is associated with this guilt and shame, and it needs a covering. We saw that with Adam and Eve. Immediately, they knew, I got to cover myself, and they did a pretty poor job, and so the Lord came along later, and he gave them coverings of animal skins, and I think there, it'd be hard not to say there that we have a picture of the atonement that God provides through sacrifice. An animal had to die. The Bible doesn't describe the killing of that animal, but animal skins means that an animal had to be skinned, therefore killed. To freely expose nakedness within the tabernacle is to undermine what's happening there as sin is being dealt with. To, walk, to, to have nakedness exposed in this holy place with all of the Edenic connotations, all of the references to Eden, is to ignore what happened in Eden and to ignore the need for covering, to ignore the need for atonement. Everything that's happening in the tent would be undermined by this nakedness. In general, it is also about reverence towards God. His holiness demands that he be approached with this level of care. So they must cover themselves. Finally, this is also about being different from the nations. This was not the case with other religions. This was not the case with other religious practitioners and priests. There would be even, uh, as we read in Genesis with Tamar and Judah, there would be cult prostitutes. You read that and you think, well, what in the world is going on there? Well, often in ancient religious practices, in addition to the ghastliness and evil of child sacrifice, showing it to be demonic, they would also engage in sexual practices so as to relate to the deity. Once again, demonic. And this would be a way of connecting with the gods as they saw it or, or of ensuring fertility in the land or whatever else. None of that is to be present in Israel. There is to be no question that any sexual practices are happening in this tent. Our priests have on their underwear. That's the idea. They're not in there doing something like that. They are covered. They are holy. And they are carrying out the worship that our holy God demands. What a contrast. What a distinction. More and more as Christians, we feel that today. The distinction between us and the world around us. It is not a distinction to be pushed away, but to be embraced. It is what it means to be a Christian in the world. 
more and more we are becoming like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do not bow down to the statue, but who worship the Lord. We also find here, I think, as we finish this point, a focus on the seriousness of worship. And you might say, now catch this, this is important. You might say as you read this, yeah, that's Old Covenant, that's Old Testament. I'm glad we're not there anymore. And of course, we recognize that we're not there anymore. We recognize the access that we have through Christ. We've talked about that. We recognize the freedom and the joy that we have in the presence of God through Christ. But it's interesting here that this seriousness of worship actually comes over into the New Testament. And I would even say specifically. Let me read to you, as I do often when we partake of the Lord's Supper, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. You might think, well, nothing of the, of the sort happens in the new covenant. I mean, this is all old covenant stuff. There's just freedom, 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 freedom now. Maximal casualness, maximal freedom, maximal spontaneity, maximal expression of the heart, whatever I feel I do. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 30, let a person examine himself then as the Lord's Supper is happening. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is where you hear the screech of the breaks. You say, hold on a second. I expect to read that in Exodus, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I expect to read that way back there before Christ, before the veil. You know, we talked about the veil. Before the veil was was rent from top to bottom. I expect to read all that there, but I don't expect to read that on this side of King Jesus. I don't expect to read that on this side of the Savior, but we do. What Paul is saying is that God had literally struck dead some people in the church in Corinth because they were participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy, unholy way. New covenant. So let me just say this. If some of the ways that we as elders fence the table and practice the Lord's Supper is not congenial, understand this, that we take such things seriously. We recognize that not all the things we do, uh, that the people here at Four Corners are going to agree with that, but we have to lead according to God's word. And what we see here is such a high level of seriousness when it comes to the Lord's Supper, much like what we find in Exodus 28. So we've seen the danger, now we come to the distinction as we finish up this morning. Look at verses 36 to 41. You shall make a plate of pure gold, once again, pure gold, bringing us back to the holy of holies, to the most holy place, and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. 
You shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Everywhere we look, in these verses, we see distinction. Distinction. The priests are distinguished from the rest of the people by being consecrated. And the high priest, Aaron, is distinguished from the other priests, his sons. In other words, everywhere we look in these verses, we see the theme of holiness. And once again, here's this theme again. It's everywhere. Anytime you have these distinctions being drawn, these lines being drawn, anytime you have that happening, we are seeing an emphasis on holiness. This is set apart. This goes here, and that goes there. Lines, distinctions, holiness. And this is nowhere clearer than in what the high priest wears on his forehead. This theme of holiness, it is nowhere clearer than there. He is to have a plate. I love this. This is my, my favorite piece of uh, the high priestly garments. He is to have a plate or medallion or a diadem on his head, right smack dab in his forehead. And the word here in Hebrew is actually the word for flower. This, this plate or medallion or diadem is the word for flower, which suggests that this may have had some kind of floral characteristic. So you'll see in the picture here, this is coming over from Septuagint translation, that you really just get it sort of as a plate. Uh, but the word suggests that there would have been probably some kind of floral characteristic to this medallion or plate. But the focus is not on the plate itself. So we really should not be preoccupied with that, but rather what is written or engraved on it, holy to Yahweh. And you can see that there, holy to Yahweh. This functions as a label. It's amazing to me. God smacks a label on Aaron, no uncertainty here, no confusion here. I mean, you would think all the other things just make that clear. But the, the problem is that we, we're not all there as we need to be, right, mentally. We, it takes us a long time to get it. And we think about Peter in the Gospels and even Moses at the burning bush. It's flabbergasting to listen to his dialogue with the Lord who has appeared in a burning bush, a bush that's burning but not consumed, arguing with God. The truth is we are often stupid in this way. And so the Lord makes it abundantly clear by slapping a label, a written label on the high priest, holy to Yahweh. It is a label for him as high priest, but it is also for the high priest as the representative of the people. So the label has two functions. It it labels him and it also labels the people through him as the representative. We see this in Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a holy representative for a holy people. 
Its purpose is described in verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. In other words, what we have here is an imperfect priest offering imperfect gifts and sacrifices from an imperfect people. But God sees the label. God sees the label. Just as God sees the stones, just as God sees the rainbow, God sees and he remembers the imperfections of the people, the sin of the people, all the things that stain and corrupt all the holiness that is supposed to happen in this tent, God sees the plate and it is removed. We think about Christ as he passes through the heavens. In that tent, with that priest, there were no stains. There was no corruption. That high priest was perfect, and he had perfectly dealt with sin once for all, passing through the heavens. The Lord of glory, the perfect high priest in the perfect tent. We read of Jesus, our high priest, in Romans 8, verses 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? All the, all the things we stain. You know what? We stain everything. Every one of our prayers is stained with selfishness, a lack of love for our neighbor, a lack of reverence towards God, a lack of gratitude and joy in God. There's not a single prayer that I've ever prayed that if I could really see it, I wouldn't see all the stains. If I could see it from God's perspective, not a single prayer that's just shiny and spotless going up in pure gold. It's never happened. Not a single prayer not a single act for someone else, not a single sermon preached, not a single anything. But Jesus is our perfect high priest. Romans 8, 33 to 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He intercedes for us always. He takes our imperfect gifts and he perfects them in the presence of God. He takes all that we bring, all the stains, all the junk, all the garbage, all the selfishness, all the pride, all the envy, all the worry, and he purifies it before the face of God. This holiness, this set-apartness of the high priest extends down to the other priests, but they are distinct. They do not wear the clothing we have discussed up to this point, and instead of a turban with a plate, they have caps on their heads, simple caps. So look at verses 39 to 41 as we finish. You shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. There we are still seeing the high priest's garments, but then it moves in the next verse to Aaron's sons. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, still priests, but not the high priest. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, 
and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. We will talk more about this anointing and consecration in the next chapter, but here's where I want to close this morning. Here's where I want us to finish. The distinction between Aaron and his sons reminds God's people that there is only one mediator. There's only one. At the end of the day, it is as though there is one priest in Israel. At the end of the day, it really is, as we've seen with all these garments, it really is as though there is only one priest, the high priest. And as Christians here this morning, we recognize that this points us to the one and only Christ. The one and only high priest. There is no other. And that is why Peter says in Acts 4 that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If you rely on any other priest, any other mediator go between, between you and God, you will fall and crumble in your sins. But through Christ, all will be well. All will be eternal bliss. All sins removed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let me say it this way. There's only one priest, and that is the priest who sacrificed himself. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you. We praise you that you have called us to be your children. You have given us your son. You have indwelt us by your spirit. We praise you, Father, that you have given us your word and you have put us with your people. We pray that we would be a holy people, set apart, filled with joy in Christ, and that we would be confident even with all of our stains, with all of our sin, that we would be confident when we come before you that through Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forever dealt with. Lord, we pray that this would give us such boldness as we live out our Christian lives. Please be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We ask that all the self-examination and all the seriousness and holiness that we just talked about would be present in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.